and welcome to the Riff Raff podcast, hosted by Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. We set up the Riff Raff to champion the work of debut authors and to provide guidance and support for those dreaming of one day being published themselves. Today we're talking to Juman Malouf, author of the Trilogy of Two, about feeling like an alien and finding your identity through your writing, how imagery can help build the worlds we create with words, and why it's so crucial to pursue your creative passion. Oh, and Juman accidentally sends Rosie's fear of flying into overdrive. The nearly completed Tiffin puppet lay on the table next to Charlotte's latest musical composition, Ode to Jack Cross, a talented boy. On one end of the bed, the twins murmured to each other in their sleep. On the other end, Taddy snored loudly with Monkey curled into a ball wheezing beside her. The trapdoor slowly lifted. A tiny cardboard box the size of a matchbox shot up into the room, hitting the ceiling, and pattered to the floor. While the sleepers slept, a plume of yellow vapor curled out of a pinhole in the top of the box, smoked into their nostrils, and forced them into deeper slumber. A set of sharp claws emerged from the dark hole, reached up, and stabbed into the floor of the caravan. Two orange eyes peered over the edge to survey the room. All clear, thought Chestnut Sabine. She squeezed inside. She shook her white coat, spraying mud and dirt across the floor, and wiped her whiskers clean. Two small, empty glass balls dangled from her collar. Chestnut Sabine wiped her lips with her scratchy tongue. She could still smell the salmon on her breath, and a wave of pleasure came over her. She remembered piercing the fish's eyes with her claws and slicing its cool flesh with her teeth. She climbed a sack of books pushed up against the bed and leapt onto the end where Charlotte and Sonia were sleeping. She waited a breath to see if anyone moved, then crouched over Sonia and began to lick her ear. After a moment, Sonia's nose began to twitch. Chestnut Sabine placed her mouth on Sonia's ear and took a deep breath. Sonia gasped in her sleep. The cat sucked harder. Sonia's chest heaved up and down, her heart pounded, and finally a glittering substance slithered out of her ear. Chestnut Sabine caught it on her tongue, licked it into the first glass ball, and flipped the stopper shut with her snout. The gold matter danced and darted, trying to find its way out. Chestnut Sabine's eyes lit up in the glow. One more to go, she thought. She crept across to Charlotte and set to work again. Taddy's groggy eyes opened. She clutched her head, spinning from the drug, and rolled over. She saw Chestnut Sabine hunched over Charlotte, sucking on her ear. She bolted upright, horrified. She gasped and lunged. Chestnut Sabine snapped her claws and scratched Taddy's face. Taddy screamed and fell backward. Blood filled the marks slashed across her cheek. Mr. Fortune Teller pounded the door, shouting, Taddy, girls, open up. Hi, Juman. Thank you so much for joining us on the Riff Raff podcast. Of course. Oh, we're so thankful to have you here. Um, could you start by telling us what your debut novel, The Trilogy of Two, is about? Um, that is a very good question. I'm sure lots of writers don't like that question. Do you like that question? Um, well, my <laughs> book was about Tinder. 
So oh, I can yes. sum it up in one, right. <laughs> one pretty succinct one. So word. my book is a bit more complicated. It has so many worlds and people and characters. And so I'm going to try my best to sort of sum it up. That's all um, you can do. <laughs> yes, that's all I can do. But basically, it's a fantasy adventure for young readers. The heroines of the story are Charlotte and Sonia, and they're identical twins who live in a traveling circus. And their whole life changes when they encounter a man with a white Persian cat um, and that leads them off um, they're forced to leave their home and they go on this great adventure through uh, harsh cities and enchanted lands and they sort of find themselves um, and where they came from is that good? Yeah. That's pretty yeah. good. Okay, that's good. <laughs> We've got, don't worry, we'll delve deeper into okay, it good. as we go on. Good. Um, so there's, sorry. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> so polite. Yeah. So there's, there's something obviously really fascinating about twins. People yes. love them. You know, there's the Weasley twins, like the twins from The Shining. What do you think it is about them that kind of holds this eternal appeal? Well, I actually grew up with identical twins and who are my, who were my best friends at the American school in London. And they were from Los Angeles and um, their parents were working in England. That's why they were in England. But uh, they're identical twins from Los Angeles and they were so exotic to me. And we became fast friends and just being sort of the third wheel to these twins was sort of made me who I am now. Um, that's why I feel like I have a hunchback, basically, because they were so short, <laughs> and each one would sort of hold on to one of my shoulders, and so it sort of um, gave me my posture. Um, but I think what's interesting about them is, first of all, it's always strange that two people look exactly the same. Mm. Not exactly. There's always something different. But it is interesting. Like, my best friends, Kim and Amy, would switch like one would go to class for another one would pretend she was with the you know she would go out with the boyfriend of the other and the boyfriend wouldn't notice so there was a lot of games like that that would happen the other interesting thing is they're so close that they sort of as they grew up they sort of fought being the same so they wanted so much to have their own identity and I think that's very interesting because all of us want our own identities and figure out who we are and you know why are we here and I think it's almost harder for twins because you sort of have this person that was in the womb with you exactly like you people sort of consider you the same and then who are you really so I think that's sort of I would say the fascination. Also, it's fun when they dress the same. Um, I always That's love crazy. seeing twins when they dress the same, which sometimes still happens. You know, they get old and they still dress the same. Have you ever seen those <laughs> conventions where they get loads of identical twins to go and they all dress the same? It's such a wonderful I know, visual. it's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to Google that immediately. Yeah. <laughs> Another funny thing about my twin friends is one of them, when they moved apart, one of them wanted to not live in the same city as the other, and the other one so badly wanted her to live in the same city. So there's that struggle there. But also, one of them would get sick. Um, like, maybe she'd have an allergic reaction. I, I remember one time her eye sort of blew up um, of course, from some allergy. And the other twin had the same thing happen to her, and they were not in the same state. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I just think there's such unusual stories. So it's sort of a mystery of life, which is another thing we're interested in. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, and the kind of like the idea with twins when they have like, you know, sixth sense about stuff, like, so, or 
or sort of phantom pain when oh, they're that kind of stuff. It's, it's exactly. fascinating, isn't it? Mm, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so that that you know, there's something already quite magical about twins without even infusing them with magic, mm-hmm. which is <laughs> what happens in the book. And mm-hmm. obviously, we'll come on to that a little more. But it, when you mentioned identity, that was something that really struck me as mm-hmm. well about the story about the twins are struggling to find their place in the world and to find their identity. In fact, they sort of go on a quest to find out more about who they are and where they came from. Mm-hmm. What is it about that position of being the sort of the outsider, the feeling of not fitting in, the slight misfit that mm. appealed so much to you and, and in fact, to, to so many writers? Well, I think for me, it's a very personal thing. I'm sure it is to many people, but we... Were bo- I was born in Beirut, and when I was a little child, there was a civil war, and my mother right away said, we have to leave this place, because I remember she was, well, what she says, I don't remember, but she said she wanted to go get us milk, and she was couldn't go a certain pathway because there were snipers and so then she couldn't get us milk anyway so things like that made her decide we have to get out of here the problem was my father wasn't there and all the banks were closed and so she didn't have money to get tickets to get on a plane so the lady who helped her in the house cleaning the house she was from ethiopia and she said i have all my money under my bed so i will give you this money if I can come with you anywhere that you're going. And so my mother said yes. And it happened that my mother had her honeymoon in England. And she's still, in those days, you had um, visas for six months. It was very different than now. Um, Or six years or something, sorry. Um, And so that's where we ended up. We first came to England, but we couldn't stay here because we were immigrants and we didn't have the right to stay here. So we tried many different places. Um, we tried Saudi Arabia because my father worked there, but my mother then hated it because of the issues with women's rights and things like that. Mm. Um, then we tried to emigrate to Canada at one point. I think there's even a point that my dad tried to get Bolivian passports, which we won't go into. But um, <laughs> but then finally, after this whole sort of moving around, not knowing where we were going to live, we did get permission to stay in, in London. And I grew up here in an American school. Um, and so I've sort of always not felt... Um, I've always felt a little bit like an alien. Um and just feeling like an alien and being an alien and sort of be feeling like a gypsy and being a gypsy. And almost when I met Kim and Amy, feeling like a twin and sort of being a twin, it gave me this these ideas for writing the book and also um, for sort of in the book trying to find my own identity and how, and how I, as a child, um, search for my ad- identity. Do you think that there's something about why writers write? Do you think that writers write books in order to find their own identities in a, in a way? I think they do. I mean, maybe some don't. Maybe um, more confident writers. <laughs> there are some of those. But I feel like many, for me, I think it's a way of doing art or any kind of art. Like for me, drawing as well. Um, it's sort of finding yourself and also expressing how you feel if you don't feel good it makes you it just gives you time to feel better you know it's sort of it's sort of meditate meditative to draw especially but also to write is is very meditative i think 
there's a lot of hardship in writing, but I also think there's a lot of quiet. And now the world is so noisy that I feel writing is a bit of a salvation for me anyway. God, I think for us as well, you say. Yeah, sometimes, and other times it's my own living hell. Yes, exactly. It's sort of a mixed bag. Yeah. Um, on the sort of subject of creativity, um, you're kind of, um, you. we've read that the idea of losing your talent as happens to Charlotte and Sonia. Mm-hmm. Um, it was inspired by a friend of yours who kind of like gave up her creative pursuits after she graduated. Mm-hmm. And um, what? why did that strike you as such a loss that she kind of gave that, that part of her? And when life is so busy, how can we make the time? to yes. be creative you know I went to a school where there was lots of creative people um, and I feel like maybe 60% of them sort of decided to go other ways once they left school and I think it's hard um, because you can't make money or you feel like you can't make money and you can't survive being doing something artistic mm. Um and most of the time that is true. So I think I think they sort of feel that they have to be, you know, they have to do something that allows them, you know, to live, to make money, to have, you know, a house, to have all these things. But in them, I feel like there was a big loss. And you do feel that they feel that loss. Mm. And some of them never, you know, one of them was a wonderful cellist. And never touch the cello, cello again. And I think about that all the time. Um, because you can see it in his eyes that there's something sort of missing. And that was the idea of how I got the idea of children losing their talents. Mm-hmm. Because there's such great talent. And then to feel it gone and then to feel the emptiness when you look at them. It's It really struck me when I was reading it what a metaphor it is almost for growing up. You know, that freedom mm-hmm. to just express yourself with no other end goal than other just than to just enjoy it and you have that so much as a kid and then as you start to grow up it's the pressures like you say of having to earn money and mm-hmm. having the responsibilities that just crowd you in and sort of push that just un- unadulterated pleasure out yes and oh my god your friend who stopped playing the cello it's my life ambition <laughs> to learn yes. to play the cello yeah, yeah. so it's such a shame that people get told get kind of guided along the path of like the more academic subjects whereas mm-hmm. like you know just like I felt like that I had that a lot people were always telling me to follow the kind of academic route rather than the creative one and it's a shame because I think a lot of people that have followed that have that creative spirit inside them that's kind of been suppressed a little Trampled. bit yeah and then they yes. try and find it like years later yeah they doubt themselves because yeah. they've kind of lost that and I think that's yeah. why there's lots of people love cooking magazines now and craft magazines and I think it's because there's so many people that want to do other things but sort of haven't been able to so then they do those kind of things which which are also um can be very artful Mm. I mean I've gotten really into gardening which I never thought I would get into but it's it's so fun Mm. you know creating colors and um we just went to Monet's house in Giverny and he has beautiful gardens and um his gardens and when you see them in the paintings he purposely made his gardens have little points of color so unlike traditional gardens where um you sort of some of them are all one color or something like that his were all random 
points of color because that's what he liked to paint. Mm. Um, anyway, it was very interesting. I can go on and bore everyone. <laughs> no, <that was> a, <laughs> my mum said that to me. She said that when you get older, you're going to like Radio 4 and you're going to like gardening. Yes. Gardening. And I remember like, oh, shut up, mum. Yeah. And now I love Radio 4 and would garden if I had one. Yes, so. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> something about like bringing, starting something off and then bringing it to life. Like, no, it's, it's, it's true. It is creating. Yeah. It's creating. Exactly. Definitely. Um. The book, the story in the book, moves at an absolutely blistering pace. Yes. There's, uh, there's uh, your character as always. Your characters are always <laughs> running, or they are running away, or on every other page there seems to be some sort of really suspenseful action mm. taking place. Was that a conscious decision to keep keep it moving so quickly? It's very funny you're asking me that question because my mother always says when I was a child. I would explain stories like that. And this happened, and then this happened, and then that. And I think it's so childish, but that's what my book is. And as much as I didn't think I did that on purpose, it just is my personality, maybe. Mm -hmm. But with the next one, I feel like it's going much slower. So I, it's almost like I wanted so much to happen in my first book. It's not purposely. It just, I just kept getting ideas and ideas. And so I kind of overstuffed it a little bit. But, um, but I think it's sort of myself as a child. It's sort of how I would have explained a story. That's why, that's why it works so well. That's, that's what it is. It's mm. that kind of like, and now we're going to go here and then this character's come. And it's just, it's like, it was almost as like you're building the world as you went did yes. you find that you were very immersed in it as as you were writing or was it a bit more of a intellectual exercise of plot points and character development um i was very immersed in it um also i have to say that i think i probably could have written three books in the time i wrote this book it took <laughs> so long that i think almost there could have been three separate stories that I've sort of maybe jammed them three stories in there. Um, but the way I start with anything, because I started out being a costume designer and, um, uh, and set designer and also fashion. I used to do fashion, but I always start out with images, images, even with writing. That's my way of getting into a book. And I think, um, what I did with this book is I would go research. I used to live in New York when I first started writing this book, and there's something called the Picture Collection, where it's a wonderful place if you've never been. It's in, um, it used to be in the Mid Manhattan Library. I think they've moved now, but it, they were collecting, cutting out from books and magazines pictures. They had just a team of people doing this from 1915 onwards. So imagine the treasure trove of images you can find. So you look up, there's about 15,000 headings. You look up, let's say, shoes, and then they, there are images from 1915 onwards, but cut out by people in folders. So it's really my type of place. But so I would go, I got this one idea, a man stealing children's talents. Then I went there and I started looking up things. I don't know, all random things. You go there and you just start to look stuff up. And I found places in my story. So like the dried up sea and um, uh, the shifting lakes and just different. I would see an image and then I would imagine what that place was. I made it a fantastical place. And then characters. I actually saw a picture of two young girls called Charlotte and Sonia and they inspired me as the heroines. And then so I 
that's how I don't remember your original question, but <laughs> it's okay. Um, we're just fascinated. Uh, yes, I'm just, subject. but um, yes. Yeah, so it it really comes from images, and then I I get ideas from images, and I think that's also why it might be packed with things because it's sort of images are endless, and if you keep looking at images, mm-hmm. you keep getting inspired, and you keep adding characters, and so on and so forth. That's such a lovely idea. Oh, good way to motivate yourself. And yes. To do it, no, it's yeah. true. I think looking at art in museums is the same thing just going to see paintings or sculptures it just gives you ideas for me anyway yeah absolutely um was who was it it was um the mermaid and mrs hancock what's her name yeah she she um she worked at quite a lot of museums when she mm. was first writing starting to write and she would write about artifacts that she kind of studied and that's how she kind of came up with her idea for that book and so it's a similar kind of idea really mm. yeah i like that yeah it's nice isn't it it's yeah. a nice, well, nice way to kind of stimulate your writing yes um so and obviously you've you've done the illustrations for this book the wonderful illustrations mm. and did so was that kind of something were they kind of something that was sparked from looking at the images or did you where did they come from did you always set out to illustrate it as well or what kind of always so I think drawing is sort of sometimes I think why am I writing I am more a drawer or you know I more visual why am I writing and torturing myself Um, but then I realized it's so fun creating world worlds with words um, I find that fascinating, and I think that's why I, I love to write. But um, the drawing came from the same research I did. So I, I used a lot of images from the picture collection, from books, from magazines that I found, and I would and I sort of patched them together like a collage. So, like, for instance, if you look at the Charlotte and Sonia, I would choose... Um, images that would be their face and then some because I came from clothing so from costumes and from fashion I I love clothing so they are kind of costume sketches that's how I learned how to draw is I learned how to do costume sketches and so that's really what they are very detailed costume sketches and that's why the clothes are so detailed it's because it's something from my past and something I'm interested in there's a lovely image of um he's, he's a he's a rowboat captain and he's wearing three jackets oh yes which I just loved it just sums up something about the essence of his character that he's yes. wearing three jackets yes I just love that yeah it um I'm trying to think where that came from I'm sure I stole it from someone, as we all do. Um, but yeah, that that is that's exactly right. Um, but images aside, the, one of the other absolute joys of the book is mm. the, is in fact the the language that you use and that you've created. And there are gobos, tiffins, yes. albans. Oh, just there's so many of yes. these beautiful magical words. We wanted to ask you about how you came up with them. Oh, that's very nice of you to say because they actually those are things that took time. I feel like some of them would just appear. I'd say, oh, I think tiffins came from the tiffin. You know, it's an Indian lunchbox mm. um, that is, I guess, on many levels. Um, and somehow I heard that and I thought, oh, I like that. That's a good word. Um, and but it took some of them took time some were called many different things um and and it took time to really have words that actually felt good or felt like it could really be what they are because when you create a creature you want it to have a good name absolutely yes and it's always the ones that kind of um 
that seem right that really land. Yes. You know, like J.K. Rowling obviously does it so well with quite oh, a lot of her amazing. kind of... And they feel like it, it's just so natural. You're just kind of like, that's the perfect thing and you've done the same thing with this. So. Yeah, thank you. That's How very nice. How fun coming up yes. with mythical creatures. <laughs> it's great. Right yeah. But think about the people who came up with lion. You know, I mean, that's a good word. Yeah. <laughs> um, tiger and all these great... Yes, oh, that's a wonderful one. How did they come up with that yeah. one? We could just sit here listing words we like. Yes, exactly. <laughs> we can do that. Yes, <laughs> that time yeah but how did you know when you when you finally hit upon the the right one what was it about a particular word that made you think ah that's it I think it's when it sticks I mean like for instance in a week or two weeks I would use it and then I would it could even be months where one is in there Mm -hmm. and if it stayed it stayed you know it's sort of exactly Yeah, yeah 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 And how and what? How, can you tell us a little bit about kind of the villain that you created, King of the Cats? Yeah, yeah. Can you kind of like because like the villains are always so much fun to write, and it just sort of I, I'm always intrigued about how people choose their kind of characteristics. Yes, that's a very good question. Um, let me think about the King of the Cats. He first came to me. I I don't really want to say this because my brother is not a villain at all. (laughs) And he isn't at all like this person, but there is something about the way he looks that I sort of modeled on my brother. Um, I know. Luckily, I don't think he listens to literary podcasts. Uh, We're going to email him the link. Yes, exactly. exactly. (laughs) Um, So it's it's different people um, made me think of him. But also... I was watching a lot of 1930s movies then, um, noir movies, and he does come from there a lot, um, from different characters um, in those movies. Because mm. he's, he's such a and and he's he's such a kind of striking character, mm. you know, like Amy said, and you know, in the way he dresses and the cat mm-hmm. that he has as well, which obviously has you know lots of. You know, villains throughout history have had, you know, a cat, you know, mm. you know, thinking of that bond and those affiliations. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what was it about? And there are actually in fact, a lot of animals all the way through the book. What is it about the sort of animal human relationship that mm. you really wanted to explore? I, first of all, I'm a big animal lover. It's something I've, I think my mom caught me talking to a cat when I was, you know, four years old saying, why are you not speaking? Because <laughs> um, I just so wanted them to speak. Um, and I, I loved all the fantasy books about animals speaking. You know, um, there's so many we can mention. But uh, I, I've, and also I am very for, um, I think the way an animals have been treated by us has always been something I've been sad about or felt, um, you know, we, we had a lot of explaining to do, um, how many animals have become extinct because of us. And so that is always something. So when I was writing the book, it was also, um, to talk about how animals are treated because in the book, the cities have destroyed all the animals, um, except for the cats, I guess. Um, so that was a, that, that was something I want to talk about and also about the environment. I guess many people want to talk about that now. Mm -hmm. So it's not some original concept, but it's an important one. Mm -hmm. And was it, was it the themes that came to you first and then you felt that you could express them best in a book or had you always wanted to write a book and then as you were getting into it, those themes were the ones coming to the fore? Mm. Well, I never wanted to write a book, interestingly, because my mother is a writer and she, 
I wanted to do the opposite of what my mother was. <laughs> and I remember when I was a young person, I went to get my tarot cards and they said, oh, you're going to do what your mother does. And I thought, no, I'm not. <laughs> but I'm sure they say that to everybody because it's an easy answer. But then I and then I did. I got this idea for a book and I thought, you know what, I'm going to write it. So maybe it's something that sort of was inside me that I just couldn't avoid, even though I tried. Um, but basically, now I've forgotten the question. See, this is what happens when you have a child. <laughs> we're we're happy to let you just ramble. Yes, worry. I ramble on and on. Um, but you asked me... Um, Whether the themes were... Um, what yes, kind of initially... So, yeah. That's right. Um, so I think themes came later. It was more the ideas that first you know, the idea of someone stealing talents, then the idea of um, the Charlotte and Sonia. And then I sort of with those two things, Charlotte and Sonia and um, stealing talents, those were the two things that kind of motivated the book. But then things started happening in the world. Um, like I remember George Bush was president and he was going to invade Iraq. So then the scrummagers came alive and there's one called Georgie, which is based on, so, you know, real <laughs> life comes into it and things that you experience and the environment then, you know, started, I started thinking, oh, these harsh cities that the King of the Cats lives in. And then I started thinking, Oh, and then these beautiful lands. So, you know, it all kind of builds on each other. Um, it's not really the themes that I was saying, I want to have the environment. and They just kind of, you know, happened. But it's also an expression of who you are. So there are things that I care about. So therefore, they sort of showed themselves. So how long have you been writing this book for then for? Very long time. Um, I shouldn't have said that. I realized when I was saying it. Um, so I was doing... I worked in fashion I worked in theater and film so I was sort of doing this um in between doing that work and it took me a long time but as I said I feel like I sort of wrote five books because I wrote it over and over and over again because I was learning how to write and I think you know some people I think write five books and then they know how to write or they can be more successful at writing and for me it was this book over and over and over again until I finally felt okay it wasn't just me it was also you know publishers agents and things like that that kept me working on it mm. and can you tell us a little bit about your writing process or any routines that you have do you write are you a morning writer we speak to a lot of authors who write in the morning I'm right now with a child I'm a writer at any possible <laughs> mo free moment I have um, but I love the morning I think you're so clear in the morning I also like the night um, because Anytime, basically, no one really wants to contact you is a very good time. It's a very peaceful time. And at night, you kind of write wildly. You know, sometimes before I go to bed, I'll write sort of gibberish for, you know, even 10 minutes. But there's some kind of wild ideas that you can kind of work on in the morning. So I like that time. It's sort of like I'm hallucinating or something. It's yeah. very freeing, isn't it? Yes. Writing on planes as well. That's another one. Yes. When you're in the air. You're in no. the air. I know. I mean, you're flying <laughs> in a metal tube exactly. through the air. I still haven't quite got over no, flying. No, exactly, yeah. yes. And, and you might not live. 
you might not get God, to I'm, your destination. Actually, man, I'm really scared of flying. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so if we could just move on. Um, what, what kind of tips do you have for other writers that are kind of trying to create a kind of fantastical world as you have? I think that it has to be something that just is something that comes to you. So if you write, it's something that sort of, that's what you start writing. Um, but in terms of tips, I do feel world building is quite hard. Um, well, for me anyway. So I think what I was talking about before, looking at images, because I think that helps world building a lot. You know, it it's even seeing images of things that exist can make you um i don't know if i should bring up your story in dubai but you Feel being free. yes you being in dubai and then imagining something that was almost unreal um so that happened to me a lot where i would even in japan i remember i was in tokyo and i was sitting up in a hotel room and it was very high up and there's all these red blinking lights so that helped a lot with building the cities even though they they're not realistic but you know realistic things can help mm. so i do feel the advice i would give is really images yeah and i suppose it's about having your eyes open isn't it because like the world like constantly inspires you or you you know you'll overhear a snippet of conversation which will then become a scene and it's mm -hmm. kind of about maybe paying attention to the, things like that you know like exactly really sometimes you wouldn't have noticed those blinking lights but if you're kind of th thinking in that exactly sense, if yeah. you've sort of gotten your self in a bit of a hate like in a mood to imagine strange things yeah. and you look out in the world you'll see strange things i also think basing the characters on people even though they're fantastical characters having them in based on people i mean like dickens was so good at that and but they're they seem almost unreal his characters but they're probably based on different people he encountered um there's no internet then so surely they must have been no they were, yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. so you know i do think i guess finding strange things in reality is a, a good thing that's a nice like finding anyway, strange things it? in reality yes <laughs> i think that's what a lot of us are trying to do yes a lot of the time yes or avoid them yes exactly and um, and the book is published by pushkin press yes what drew you to a, a slightly smaller more independent publisher well my book was published in america um by now oh my god we by Putnam, Putnam <laughs> and Sons, which we'll is part we'll, of Penguin. We'll cut out the pause. Yes, right? yeah, cut out the pause, please. Uh, um, Putnam and Sons, and um, and that was very exciting. They did a hardback, um, and I really was involved with the cover and all that stuff. And then we were very lucky. I, basically, Pushkin were the ones who wanted it. It wasn't like I the. N n people were knocking what did they say knocking down the door yeah yeah, yeah. okay good um so pushkin wanted it and i love pushkin i've you know i'm a big fan of stefan zweig um and a lot of books they started with they used to just translate um, they had translated books um but then they grew a little and now they have very good children's books so i was very happy to be with them but also to have my book published in England, because England is where I grew up, and it's the place that sort of took my family in when we were immigrants. And I feel, for me, it was really important to have it published here, because a lot of my ideas come from growing up here, from Roald Dahl, from Alice in Wonderland, from Charles Dickens. So things that I, 
you know, Covent Garden when I was young, just things that I was exposed to by growing up in England. So for me, I feel very proud of it coming out in England. Oh, and we're so, we're so proud to have it out over here. It's such a fantastic read. Thank you so and much. And I will start asking you questions eventually. Yes. Um, <laughs> but it's, it, it's a children's book, essentially, but it's one of those books like things like um, Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials that really crosses the bridge between children's literature and adult fiction. It can... It, you, I mean, I read it and loved it. Mm-hmm. You can... Adults can read it. What is it about children's fiction that I still that captures adults imagination I think it's what we started talking about how adults sometimes lose the things they loved and you know when you're a child you just are allowed to love crazy things or say crazy things or yell and do all these you know dance do ballet in the middle of a hotel lobby Um, so I think Adults always want that back. (laughs) They can't quite get it, but when they read these books, it sort of is a sort of way of touching it a little bit. So true. Oh, so true. Thank you so much. What a pleasure to chat to you. Oh, it was lovely. Thank you very much, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. The Riffraff Podcast is hosted by co-founders Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. Come say hey at the-riffraff.com Rosie and I just wanted to thank you all so much for listening. We're so incredibly grateful. So please do let us know what you think, what you'd like more of, and any debut authors you'd like to hear from. Also, it would be really lovely if you could subscribe and give us a review so we can spread the word and give these marvellous debut authors the exposure they deserve.